From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning and welcome sports fans, welcome statistics fans, and welcome business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner, some combination of the three of us, and Cade Massey here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. And, of course, this is a call-in show. We've been here for five and a half years taking your calls, and we want to keep taking them. So please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Um, I've been doing a lot of tweeting lately at our Twitter handle, at WMoneyBall. And, of course, you can always email our producer, Matt Datz, during the show, during the week. We'll answer your questions at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So we have our kind of our standard format for the show today, the first half hour. Shane, uh, Adi, and I are going to see what caught our eye in sports and of course use that as a if you like trojan horse and platform to talk about statistics and then in our second half hour the first time in our five and a half years that i think we're going to be talking about the analytics of cricket certainly one of the largest sports in the world not one that i think any of the three of us are experts in but we're here like our listeners to learn and then of course we're back to the safe home ground in the first half hour of the last hour of the show we're going to be talking about nfl and then, of course, we'll end up with over-unders and all kinds of other great stuff. So how are you guys this morning? Excellent. Excellent. I'm, I'll, I'll get the ball rolling, if great. you don't mind. Um, Good. I read an article yesterday um, in The Athletic, which is where you read some wonderful stuff of all different varieties on the Astros. And they were trying to break down the second stage of the sign-stealing scandal. I love how that alliterative is that how, uh, how valuable was it, right? So we know they did it. Um, we know how they did it, more or less, but we don't really know what it bought them. Mm-hmm. So that's really kind of a, somewhat of an open question. If you talk to baseball people, and anybody who plays baseball would say, well, knowing what the pitch is is monumental because obviously you can lay off the, bre- the, the breaking balls, you, uh, you can sit on a fastball, and these things are very valuable. So before you get to the details of what you found, and this to me is a really great statistics problem too because it kind of lays out a counterfactual where you can't observe the other part of the counterfactual, like what would have happened had they, they not done the yeah. st- sign stealing. Right. And, the well, first of all, we all know there's a whole framework in statistics that thinks about counterfactuals where you can only observe one of the two outcomes. But what I'm interested to hear about is how this article, you know, kind of addresses the fact that, well, you know, the Astros weren't necessarily the same team after and okay. before, and well, how you deal with all of that. Right. So, so please, so tell us what it, it says. It, so the article is really completely descriptive, and they don't, in fact, they're very careful to say, all, um, all we are doing is giving you fractions, um, you know, appropriate fractions, but they're not trying to build a model or make a forecast or do too many adjustments. So they did some work on the team level. I'll start with that, and I'll just be very broad, and I didn't have the chance to check the data. I always That's the first thing I always do when I look at a baseball article, I grab the data. Well, let's go, go through, through the, so the let's findings go through, one at a so time. One at a time. So the most, I think the most interesting one, at least from a statistical perspective, is to track the drop in strikeout total from the Astros in 2016 to 2017. And in a, on a just and the right way to think about it is is how much variance or standard deviation you get on a year to year basis from from all teams over in the modern era. So just and for it, our listeners here, let's imagine the number is well. Tell us the number about for 1,400 strikeouts a season is a typical amount. Okay, so, so this that's is the what, total. Right. So this is what we as statisticians do all the time. So someone says, "Well, the number went down. I'll make it up from 1,300 to 1,100." And that seems like a very large drop. 
Oh, that is, by the way. No, no, I know it would be. (laughs) But if someone told you the standard deviation was 400 versus 75, that's a totally different ballgame. Right, so what we do in statistics is we like to scale a a difference by a standard deviation and create what we call a Z-score. And and Z-scores are great because they're integers, and a Z-score bigger than 2 is sort of dramatic. And most of them are between minus 2 and plus 2, typically. Mm -hmm. And that's if, I mean, obviously you have to believe a certain empirical rule, we call it, and those don't don't always follow, and those, those are obviously wrenches in the system. But just so the standard deviation, as they reported it, was around 60, 65. So just to so, be clear. So that's the year-to-year standard deviation from team to team in their total strikeouts. Yes. Uh, excluding strikeouts. Well, well uh, excluding, year-to-year variation for a particular team or year-to-year variation across teams? No, 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 no. A given team. A given team can vary from year-to-year. Yep. Assuming the same personnel or... Neighboring teams. That's all we're doing, right? So we're just doing uh, a team T to team T plus one. Look okay. at those differences. Plot that for every team. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. there so you I go. Just so just we're already, this. by by making that comparison, we're already making an assumption that the Houston Astros in year to year very like Damn change right. their personnel about the same as any other team well, does. Right. So when we reflect on their standard deviations, how many standard deviations, we're going to have to interpret it yeah. using that lens. And that's exactly so. One of the things that you're you're saying is is that is that um, when you look at a, a number and which we're about to do, we have to understand it in that context. Now we will. You have to remember all this is the sixty six is done over all teams. So some teams stay the same. Some teams change a lot. Um, I'm, the, the interesting thing about it is that the Astros. Here come you can put a drum roll if you like. The Astros had the biggest drop in modern baseball. Boom. Not even close. They dropped by over 350 strikeouts in one season to the next. Wow. Now, so they obviously changed personnel, but they're not the only teams that ever changed personnel yeah. to have things over, the, over their history. And so this is to be that distant. Now, just the simple thing to do is take the 350 divided by 66 or so, and that's five to six standard deviations. Which is like never. Which is like never. And, and it, it, even under wildly um, non-normal distributions, you still don't get out there very often. Um, so that's, this, is a, this is like you know, grade A evidence that this is something I think remarkable. also for the layperson, the layperson can also say, you don't have to be a statistician to say how many baseball seasons there's been, how many differences there's been in the modern era. There's been thousands and thousands of such seasons, and this is the most extreme. Mm. Which, by the way, that's another way that people, if you don't want to make distributional assumptions, people tend to norm these things, which is just compute an empirical distribution, see the percentile that this fell on. In this case, it's not only the lar- it's not only well, depending on what you call it, the largest difference, but it probably, it would be great to see the entire distribution. Because right. my guess is it might be the largest exceptional or drop by two or three standard but, deviations. And, and, it is. And, and we, uh, another thing I'd be curious about, I don't know if the article touched upon it, is, you know, I mean, the Red Sox have also been, you know, at least embroiled in this. In, mm-hmm. You know, just guess who's I, number two? Is it really the number two <laughs> yeah, drop? Yes. That's funny. That's funny. Um, so it's interesting. Nothing like the Astros. Just And, of course, we don't know the timing. And one thing that makes it kind of complicated. Did they start at 17, 18? Yeah. And um, so just they, they broke it down by, by home and away. Uh, to, about uh, two-thirds of it were at home. About one-third of the drop is, is on the road. There's there's clear that they had access to the center field cameras so the on two, the road. That, that's so, interesting that two-thirds of this giant exceed, or one-third of this giant exceedance is, is on, on the road. Is on the road. 
road where you would think the sign stealing would have no. No, they're, they're, they're actually saying that, they had, that they had access. They're, they're, they believe that there were sign stealing on the road as well. Wow. The center field cameras um, and and the uh, were available. The live center field feed, not the delayed feed, which we see on TV, was available to every team, both home and away. It's not. I don't believe they were using the garbage can trick anywhere other than home. Can I just try to, as you guys know, um, I'm an effect size person. So let's try to. I like to do this envelope math all the time. So how many strikeouts did it drop? Like three hundred, you said. Three hundred and fifty. Three fifty. So. Two per okay. game. Okay. Well, that's where I'm going with this. Yeah. So that's two less strikeouts per game. Yeah, it's a little bit more than that. I think they were. It's like not about Over two and a two. half. Yeah, yeah, two to two and a half. Nine to six point five. Okay. So let's now think about the impact that that could have. For example, on the runs scored, because you know batting average on ball in play. You could look oh, at yeah. these are now balls in play. Obviously, they're not being they're not strikeouts. Yeah, they're There's, not necessarily. They're still potentially out. Outs. So you'd want to kind of look at what their other outcomes are. You know, I mean, I mean, if they, if if all this was doing was translating, I mean, one type not, of out to another, you know, a strikeout to a ground out, it's not going to necessarily have any impact on runs. One would guess, no, of course, they don't have a commiserate and increase in ground think, outs. I would also think that you know you only get just back to norming this. You only there's 27 outs in a game, so this means that you know if it's two less strikeouts per game, that seems to me to be a massive potential. It's massive. There's actually more than that. It's uh, uh, two and a half two strikeouts, and a half. whatever so it is. It's it's really a lot. Now, so I, 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 it's not fair to just just rag on them, although they do deserve it. They kind of go through every player, and if they count, uh, one way to measure how so not every player seemed to have used this, um, and the way they guess that is by how many times the garbage can was banged during their at bats because they can count that and listen. And their fans have done this. It's amazing. Of it's the legions of uh, of interested parties. So the the players that um, that have the biggest d- decline seem to have also the num- largest number of trash can bangs. So that kind of correlates along with it. But the, now the counter evidence is, of course, that the uh, the Astros actually hit the cover off the ball on the road <laughs> much more so than they did at home. So the, the the argument would be if they're getting all this advantage at home, why do they do so be- much better on the road? The counter-argument to that is that everybody seemed to have done terribly in, in Minute Maid Park. Um, everything was suppressed there and so their their competitors... Is that, uh, but that's atypical for Minute Maid Park, right? It's uh, not historically it's not a historically, park that but has... In that season, you, this look, was a bad... Just sort of, a lot of that has to do with ball distribution. I mean, now that we're starting to understand the balls, I, I would guess that the parks hold get big batches of balls. They sit on them, and there's huge variation in the ball seam um, heights and the quality. How much of the ball. variation would uh, of, of this? crazy kind of change year to year would that explain? I'm not sure but I'm just throwing out hypotheses. Well let me ask you another <laughs> related question from an analytics perspective which is so obviously every team in baseball is using analytics today. Okay? So now you've got a change for the Houston Astros where they're striking out less than historically. Teams can obviously measure this during the season. I didn't say they knew they were cheating at the time but they, they're observing this. You could also imagine, therefore, there'd be another benefit to the Astros of teams pitching them differently because guys aren't striking out. You know, I'll make it up. Breaking pitches don't seem to be as effective against the Astros. They lay off them. That's basically Yeah, no, no, no I'm saying. Yeah. But you can measure. That's my yep. point. So this is why this is a very difficult. I know you weren't saying they were coming up. This article had a, was a causal story. But even knowing you're, you're probably measuring is what I would call the first order effect. There may be second order effects that are not that tiny. Like if you knew you could. Throw a breaking ball to somebody out of the zone because they're not going to swing at it. 
That, to me, that's the big advantage of a pitcher. Sure. And so now if that's gone and the other side actually analytics in some sense exacerbates this problem because other teams can now measure that the Astros aren't swinging at balls so we, out of the we zone. Would, we would need to confirm that yeah. teams kind of realized this was no, no, happening while it was happening. Right. I mean, I retrospectively, agree. obviously, it does look like an unprecedented kind of change in strikeout rates, whether they would have kind of noticed that. I would think they would during, have to. During, they during to, the season? They, they I mean, we, we could easily talk to, you know, Somebody from opposing the, pitching coaches or whatever, saying, like, did you guys realize something was happening with the Astros? Were you actually, you know, tra- you know, kind of advising your pitchers differently with for the Astros so, versus other teams? Yeah, so anything else? Just to wrap up this topic, anything else in that article that was interesting? This oh, is obviously, it goes on and on. Actually, I mean, they have lots and lots of more data. They don't ever try to t- tell a story that is, uh, that as, I said, as you said, causal. They don't try to build a model. In fact, they're, they're, one of the things that they don't do is I'm not sure their denominators are right. You want you really should figure out, you know, of your 27 outs, what fraction are right. strikeouts? I maybe that's the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. They're, one of the things that, that that really often throws a, a wrench in proper statistical analysis. You play more uh, winning teams play far more far. I mean, substantially more innings on the road. Why do they do that? Because when they're home, they play. They only bat eight times, right. yeah. and that actually can make a that's Big already difference. ten. You know, mm-hmm. and the games that you're ahead, that can make a, a substantial yeah, differences so, on. And, on and this these are all on strikeout totals. Not these strikeout are on rates. totals. No, they also looked at rates as well. But I'm not sure how how do they figure out rates? Is there a total number of at bats that resulted yeah. in strikeouts, or was it outs? I think they did. I think they did a, a cautious and good job. But it's really just percentages, and you really have to dig in so, deeper. So let me use that to trans to transition to. But it's baseball still. Let me use that to transition to a topic we've talked about many times. On in fact, probably every show that we have here on Wharton Moneyball, we obviously have to talk about regression to the mean. Mm-hmm. It's one of those effects that happens over and over again. So I have questions, two questions for you about uh, the baseball projections, given records in 2019 and the projected now in 2020. I'm, I'm, I'm right now remembering what I projected last week for well, the Dodgers, and I'm wondering I know, whether I, I did the right thing. But I have, I have some <laughs> new points here. So first of all, the team of the teams that are above the mean, we'd expect them to revert downwards. The team with the largest predicted drop is the Astros. Now, my question to you, do you think that's just a whoever's setting this over-under line, um, obviously or doing some analysis, or do you think it's like, well, the Astros really weren't 107 wins because they cheated. They were really 102 wins, and therefore... You know, I'm not, you know, because right now they're reverting back 10 wins. The over under is 97. If you believe that 107 is a mixture of true strength plus cheating, then in plus some. Plus luck. Plus, yeah, I understand. Cheating plus luck. Then you'd have to, yeah, you'd have plus, to actually. Plus, and of course they lost Garrett plus Cole. Plus a well run or, Yeah, plus they lost their, their best GM, pitcher, their manager. Plus their GM, plus their manager. That team has gotten, has uh, basically been burned to the ground. Well, I'm actually surprised so, it's at 97. What do you think, Shane? It sounds like it, you're arguing that at 97 is too high. It's 97 and a well, half, to I, be honest. No, no. I, I mean, I guess I'm just arguing that still yeah, I, I would certainly drop them at least like 10 runs just because their organization's been completely overhauled, especially their manager and general manager. Well, let me ask you two questions. And they lost their So just pitcher. help our listeners here understand, obviously, like a team getting worse is one yeah. reason you would regress them back. But maybe some of our listeners want to understand the idea of, let's call it differential shrinkage. Why? Why would one team get shrunken back towards the mean more than the other? Now, of course, one reason would be if actually the more extreme you are, 
the more you're likely just by mm-hmm. statistical yeah. regression. Yeah. Like if you're a 105 win team versus a 95 win team, all else equal, the 105 you would regress back more because there's some component of randomness more yeah. possibly. So basically, one yeah. way to very simply figure this out is you take how far you are above the mean in standard deviations, and then you just regress down proportionally to the correlation. And that is exactly what happens. So if you are, the Astros are a good two standard deviations above average, but that, of course, they're a great team. So just without any change at all, you would probably regress them. I, would, I think it's around 0.6 is the year-to-year variation. Year yeah. So that would suggest that they would get about 93, 90, something like that wins. So, I mean, no, sorry, 107 is probably three standard deviations or two and a half. So that probably, 97 might not be that far from the standard regression to the mean kind of overall year-to-year calculus without mm-hmm. even looking at the team variation. The, I think the reason why, but I would say they're not doing regression to the mean. This forecast, most no. of the forecasters have way too much dispersion than, than regression to the mean suggests. If you if you had to ask me what the largest forecast for a team would be, I'd probably say about 95, 96 wins in the entire major. Yeah, season. certainly and, if you, you would never go above 100. Right, and so we're, never. the Astros, I mean, uh, the, the Dodgers people are predicting over 100. Mm-hmm. They're predicting the Astros near the 100. They're predicting the Yankees, Yankees over 100. 100. This betting yeah. line, this is... This this is the um, this is the Vegas betting lines only have the Yankees projected over a hundred. Only the Yankees. Only the Yankees. But let me just tell you. Let me go to the opposite side. I was surprised to see this at the bottom end. There were two teams near the bottom that are regressing away from the mean. Now that was interesting to me. So the Mariners are predicted the over-under was less wins than they had last year, and they had 68 wins last year. They must know something. I, 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 and the Giants, <laughs> now here's the one that's the most shocking. The mm-hmm. Giants had 77 wins last year, and the over-under is 70 and a half. So I was just asking you, just what would make, except for, I mean, maybe... Personnel a, changes. It that's would have got to, be, to be, right? So Personnel, and, and I mean, <clears throat> in the case of the... Uh, the Giants uh, did did the entire NL West, except for the Dodgers, uh, go down in the projections? Because it could be that they are actually like, well, you know, doing if, some sort of if we're doing the Dodgers or... up at about 100 wins, you know, a you gotta lot take it from somewhere else. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, this is Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. I'm here with my co-host this morning, professor of statistics, Shane Jensen, and professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 132. You can join the conversation at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Guys, there's also something very interesting happening in the NBA, but I didn't until our producer Matt Datz put it on our rundown sheet. I knew it was extreme, but I didn't realize it was as extreme as it was extreme. We have this season. If you use point differential as a measure of team strength, it's not a bad measure. I understand it can very vary. Good. It's not a bad yeah. measure. We have the greatest team in the history of the NBA this season. The really? greatest team wow. in the history of the NBA. Th- right now, the Milwaukee Bucks. The, wait, let me finish. The Milwaukee Bucks have the through fifty-two games. It's not the whole season, but through fifty-two games, have the highest average point differential of any team in the history of the NBA. According to our notes here, there are only four teams that have ever had a plus twelve, more than twelve point differential. They're at twelve point four eight one. The other teams are, and you'll notice some of, you'll recognize some of these teams. One is the 71-72 Lakers. That was Will Chamberlain, Oscar Robertson, Jerry West. That was many consider. That was a team. I think I had a 33 game winning streak. I think they have the longest winning streak in the history of the NBA. The next team is the 1970-1971 Bucks, which was also one of these historically great teams. And the other is not surprisingly the 95-96 Bulls. All of those teams went on to win the NBA title. By the way, notice. 
the five-year great Golden State dynasty. Notice I didn't list any of them. Notice, except... No, I feel like I have a, remember having a conversation a couple of years ago about Golden State's point differential. Sort of I, it wasn't the that high. Being, I'm not saying it wasn't high. No, no, high. no. I mean, obviously... It, and it, again, maybe I'm exact... Because look, maybe 12.48.481 is not that different than 11.6 or 11.7. All I'm commenting on is this Bucks team seems to be flying under the radar. You know, they're again, they well, have the highest point. Now, part of it could be there could be greater dispersion this year. As a matter of fact, I've talked to you guys about this. Let's get your thoughts on this. Remember I've told you, I've never seen a distribution like this. There are roughly 13 NBA teams with a 600 or above winning percentage, 13 with a 400 or less, and almost nobody, like four or five teams between 400 and 600. So most people expect to see, you know, a normal distribution, yeah. like a bell shape. Bell shape. We, have an, we have a U-shaped distribution. Yeah. We have 40% on the extremes and 20% in the middle. So maybe it's Milwaukee beating up. Maybe we should take a trimmed mean. Maybe we should trim 5% on either side and then compute a mean and see where we are. Maybe, you know, all I'm commenting— You can do it op- uh, opponent-adjusted— yeah, and I mean you know? the, the Bucks. I th- I mean you know one one argument against the Bucks being sort of historically great, I guess, would be: Are they playing in a, in a conference right now that is not challenging them to the extent that like some of these other historical teams had to deal with? Well, one thing I can say is that the Eastern Conference is considerably weaker mm-hmm. than the Western Conference yeah. this year. In the following sense, I think right now, like Orlando, the eighth seed is the eighth seed in the East, yeah. and I think there are twenty three wins and thirty one losses, something in that neighborhood. Um, in the West, you know, every team that's potentially making the playoff is well over 500. So I think, yes, the East is a worse conference. I just thought, you know, for a team that has the highest point differential yeah. in the history of the NBA, and also it wouldn't be shocking to me if they end up near 70 wins. I mean, they're they're on a pace. They're on a pretty historic pace right now. I think their record, they're, well, they're 46-7. and seven. Yeah. So... Could they go twenty four and five the rest of the season? Tell me how many times they play good teams. I mean, really good teams. Well, that I don't that's, know. That's I, what it comes down yeah, to. I, I don't mean, know what their schedule. Look at their losses. I mean, who do they lose to? They probably. I, lo- I know they lost, lost to the Sixers. I watched that game, um, and wasn't even close. I mean, obviously, basketball mid you know season seasonal basketball games can look very odd. And I'm the thing. I'm, I'm not so so impressed by the, by differential statistics, particularly because you point out there's so many really awful teams to beat up on, and also when you have big leads, just it's garbage. And and that's that's a, a feature of basketball. But again, a lot of people will be saying this is great. It's good statistical discussion because a lot of people say, yeah, but that was that's been true every year. Yeah, that's true. There's always been garbage time. There's always bad teams in the NBA. Now maybe again, maybe again. there's more bad <laughs> more teams this year, more than ever. And that, and, that and, could and, lead to and, it. And the fact that this kind of U-shaped distribution where we've got either very, very good teams or very, very bad teams, is that something that's kind of historically unprecedented? Yes, it's unprecedented. I've been looking. I've, I've and, actually and, gone and, back and, and looked and, at this. And is, is it kind of – I mean, you know, you're – Sometimes you just get historically unprecedented stuff by kind of like happenstance. Or do you think there's something systematically in the way basketball – like has there been kind of a sea change in the way basketball teams are run that – like so one thing one could argue is that basically everybody's kind of bought into the process – and so if you're kind of a middling, you know, people have sort of seen that yeah, there's, no, there's, no point, there's no point to be a, being a middling team in basketball. They realize that. 
And yeah. you, you, you either, Race you either, to the bottom you either have to the successfully top. reloaded or you are currently trying to reload. And that's going to put you in, I in, think, in one part of that. this you yeah. Speaking of, well, speaking well, of that. One thing, but yeah. I think one, one thing about that, which I agree with, is, of course, we also have, you know, kind of player power has increased. Mm-hmm. And so now, you know, we have these super teams yeah. that are being created basically right. by the players who are saying, let's all play together. So, yeah, I, I think that in conjunction with the Sixers showing the NBA, if you tank you can enough, do it. you can get, you know, Joel Embiid, you can get Ben Simmons. All right. You can. Let me just, while we're on Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, there's a statistical oddity with the Sixers this year, which is, which is talk about uh, maybe historic. The differential or the comparison, if you will, between their home record and their away record is monumental. They yeah. are, I believe they're 20 and 2. 25 and 2. 25 and 2. 25 and 2. Which means they've won a grand total of. They're what, 9 and 19 on the road. 9, nine and 19. They're nine and nineteen on the road. That's unbelievable. So essentially, yeah. they're they're a, a they're a not even a four hundred team. No, uh, on the road, and they're essentially an eight hundred. They're the or best. 900. They're the best team in the NBA at home. Right. And just to give you a, a comparison for our fans here, I'll give you another team that happens to be nine and nineteen on the road. It is the Charlotte Hornets who are seventeen and thirty six. Is the Charlotte Hornets overall record? Which is record. about the right now. Yeah. Right. So can somebody in this room in the world explain this? A hypothesis. Any reasonable? Is it random variation? Those no. locker rooms very comfortable. <laughs> so let's just know. let's just know. toss that. Yeah. Uh, no, and just as a background, teams tend to win fifty-seven, fifty-eight percent of their games at home. That that is a historic background. But yeah. we're looking at a, a, a hugely practically significant difference. This is, a, this is something to think about. Have, is have, it have, have people broken it down to the, so? Because that's, that's obviously like kind of a team level statistic. They have, have people broken it down to the individual? Like, are there particular like is. Are the, are are all the players kind of uniformly playing so much better at home versus yes. the road? Or, yes. So okay. I'll, so I'll tell you what I've the stat yeah. I've seen on this is that you know one of the statistics people use is you know offensive points per hundred possessions and the Sixers at home and defensive of course the Sixers are a top five offense and defense at home that's not surprising they're actually they're, 20... they're actually an extremely good defense at home no no this deep, is right. their Especially, this is I think their number one defense they are their number one defense and I think offensively and they're they're good but good. not great but at it, home. but on the road. Not They're so much. They're not as good defensively, and so are they just lazy? I mean, is it because defense in basketball? I'm not an expert, but it seems to me that a large portion of defense is how hard you try, and we. This is one of the reasons why playoff basketball is so much more, so much different than than seasonal basketball. So here's another possibility. I mean, that that's tiring. Matt, Matt, <laughs> that, that Matt put up on the screen, which is also um, the Sixers have had a massive number of injuries this year. I mean, obviously, Embiid has been out a significant amount of time. Jason Richardson's been out a significant amount of time. And so, in some sense, what, I, what I'd like to see is what's the Sixers' road record? This gets back, actually, to the same comment that you know, Shane made earlier, or you made earlier, Adi, which is, you know, let's see the Bucks' record against good teams. Yeah. When the Sixers have had their top five players all playing, what then is their road record? My guess is it's not as bad as you think. Like that differential is going to get shrunk and you're dramatically. Saying, and I guess you, and the did, home record. And, 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 well, the and, home record has to be great because they're twenty-five and two at home. So right, any but, kind of, but 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 are there like kind of sometimes injured players more likely to play at home? Is that kind of what yes. you're sort of arguing? Yes, there? yeah, yeah. Well, they don't travel on trips because right. you know you're trying to recover right. from injury. So that could be one reason. But I'm just telling you, it's it's an unprecedented. And matter of fact, a lot of people have said. That's the kind of thing that, I mean, maybe they'll win the title this year, who knows, but that's not great coaching. Like, why is the team 25-2 and two at home and 9-19 and 19 on the road? 
That's unacceptable. Yeah, I mean, it certainly does not. It, it's not a, a, a good, in, a, a favorable indication of consistency. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think there's any bleed over to the playoffs, meaning the following? Do you think, like, how much, if you had to predict the Sixers in a playoff game, how much would you shift? And obviously they're playing the same team. How much would you shift the point spread? Is home field advantage in general uh, more or less dramatic in the playoffs versus regular season? I think it's more. I mean, that's at least it seems to be in the last, you know, finals that we've watched where there's been a lot of winning at home oh, and a lot of losing on the road. If, you, if, if you, you're taking the last finals as your sample no, no, size no, no, here, you'd, all you'd, all you'd slaughter somebody for doing that. <laughs> no, no, but this, I'm going to be quite frank. The only serious basketball I watch is the playoffs. <laughs> right. So, no, I, the only things I know. They, no, but I, I mean, well, I, I didn't ask that question well, to be and, rhetorical. Uh, I also way. don't know. Let me ask the question in a slightly different way. Yeah. Given their road record, regardless of where they end up seeded-wise, right now they're the fifth seed in the East, but maybe they'll move up. Who knows? Um, would you favor them in any road playoff game? Ah, that's a good question. That's a much better question. Thank you. I um, do my best uh, and that's on much, Moneyball. Uh, so it's not clear that I would, um, but I certainly would make the gap much smaller than predicted during the season. That So I certainly would regress that down. I think that the, the home Sixers are much closer to the true Sixers than the road Sixers are. Well, uh, that's an interesting theory because they're a you know over 900 team at home. That's right. And they're below a 400 team on the road. On the road. So their truth is probably somewhere One, around... Someone I mean, would well, say they're I, the middle. I don't believe 600 that. 600 or 650 I is think probably... That's a 50-something win team. You think they're better than I that? I think they're better yeah. than that because I think that the home is what, you're, is what you would see during the playoffs. That the intensity, the group, you're going to see the true Sixers. You're much more likely now to see the true Sixers at home because of travel, because of injury, because of variety of different things. I don't think that's the home field advantage. By the way, yeah, just- except I mean, I would also sort of say, I mean, I would favor them probably in a road road playoff game in their first series because they're going to be like sure. the two seed, right? Why do you assume that? No, they're the five, they're, no. and they're four games back or three and a half back of the Miami Heat for the four. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't make so any they play assumptions. Four. Right. I don't think I think they're right. better than the Miami Heat. Well, Again, yeah, but let me just say, by the way, that means their second round series is against the Milwaukee Bucks. Yes, here's because the one would play the. Well, four, you got to knock them off at some. No, point. No, <laughs> I got that. Well, that's what we said about Toronto last right. year, and we didn't. Right. But let me just say, um, here's a little data. So, from from 1998 to 2008, at least, um, this is kind of old, unless it meant to be 2018. But the home winning percentage during the regular season was 60.6 percent. And in the postseason, it's sixty four point nine percent. So there's about it more. is certainly more about four four yeah. percent more. Yeah, but it's that that part potentially could be possible that the games all start on the home team's court, so they probably play slightly more games at the home team, uh, and the home team is better. They're, they're, sorry, there's one team that's always better in the playoffs, yes. and they probably play slightly more games at home. Just throwing that out as a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. true too. Yeah, sure, that is definitely true too. Um, so. One other thing that was interesting to me about the NBA that's gone on also uh, in the last you know few weeks or stuff is that it turns out this is another interesting statistic I found. So Boston starting lineup of Gordon Haywood, Kemba Walker, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and Daniel Thies. Um, apparently, they're the best starting five in the NBA by plus minus rating. And also by, you know, when they look at the five-man starting lineups in the NBA. So 
Does that tell you that maybe we should be, we've been underestimating the Celtics all year long? And like you know, yeah, the people talk about the Bucks, people talk about the Sixers. No one talks about the Celtics as being a team that should that could win the title. You know, given the given the playoffs where you're basically going to play your five starters yeah. really a lot of minutes, maybe we should be thinking Boston's a one of the favorites. No, and I mean, I mean, I, I have to confess, I, like like Audie, I don't pay a lot of attention to regular season. NBA. I don't think it's, the it's, basketball it's, players themselves. Do. Well, right. I mean, it's hard to read anything. In into it. But I think it's just interesting that we've kind of been talking about basketball for the last 15 minutes and we brought up these two or three historically unprecedented things all to do with teams in the East. And do we any of us think a team from the East is actually going to win the championship? The Bucks certainly could. I think the Bucks could. But you know, I, I just kind of feel like, you know, all like should we be paying more attention to Philly? Should we be paying more attention to Boston? We've paid like no attention to the teams we actually think are dominant in the league right now, which are out west. Oh, well, you know, I, I was walking in here uh, this morning. I, I was talking to our associate producer yeah. and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, and I said, you know, the more I'm looking at this, this looks like a Lakers year. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at, you know, it looks like LeBron. They've got LeBron James. Well, not just LeBron James, I mean, but they've got Anthony Davis. Yeah. All well, of a sudden, you right, know, no, I, mean, I see, I've watched a lot of the Laker games this year, and, you know, it looks like when he wants to, you know, it's still what I, yeah. we, we always call in our family playoff Rondo. You know, when Rondo decides <laughs> he, when Ray, Rajon Rondo decides he wants to play, he's like a top five point guard in the NBA. And so, you know, you're going to have Rondo in the playoffs playing hard. No, I, I like the no, Lakers' I mean, makeup I, I, I mean, entirely. I, I've yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I just, I, I, but, I, I even have a more simplistic view. Is I have watched many times LeBron James win or almost win the championship with like a bunch of nobodies and with he's him. Got, really, he's got players, and now he definitely does not have a bunch of nobodies with him. The other thing I noticed also, this is the other reason I'm, I'm bullish on the Lakers, and this is why to me he's one of the great stars of all times. He would be happy in a game. And it's you can't say this. I don't think the same would have been true about Michael Jordan. I don't think the same would have been true about Kobe Bryant. LeBron would be happy winning a playoff game with ten points and twenty assists. Matter of yeah, fact, I think yeah. he'd be happier yeah. with ten points and twenty assists than thirty points and five assists. If he if he only scores ten points and they still win the game, that's a good sign for for that team just in no, general. No, but I right? just think he would rather yeah. have twenty assists in a game. Than thirty points plus in a game, well, and that's an rare assist, for a superstar. Assists mm-hmm. are uh, the scale of assist is about a half of a, a of. A, I mean, because of assist usually it's a two points, so that's a lot of assists. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's leading the league in assists. He's, yeah. he's leading the league in assists. Right. Well, but I think is, your, your your point is he 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 he's happy to kind of be like you know not the the big shooter every time or whatever you know absolutely. Well, this has been the first quarter of work yeah. money, but we've talked a lot about the MLB. Thanks to Adi for bringing up. Some really interesting data on the Astros. We've talked a lot about some real large exceedances in the NBA. So we've got three quarters to go. Stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here this morning with my co-host, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner, 
some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132. Guys, I've always said one of the great things about doing Wharton Moneyball is not just interviewing interesting guests, but of course, we're in the learning business. That's what we as professors do. I will not claim to be an expert on cricket, but I will claim the following. After this interview, I think we're all going to know a little bit more and also a little bit more about the analytics of it. So we're fortunate to have Tim Wigmore on the show. Uh, besides a listener of the show, uh, Tim is currently a staff writer for the Daily Telegraph. He also contributes to The Economist, wow, 538, ESPN Crick Info, The New York Times, uh, The New Statesman. He writes on business, politics, sports, corruption, sports globalization, sports science, technology, and analytics. And he's got a recent book, Cricket 2.0, Inside the T20 Revolution, which is the shorter cricket game, for those that you don't know, and it was released in October 2019. So, Tim, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Hi. Uh, thanks for that very kind introduction. Well, it's um, it sounds to me like you're sitting at the center of cricket, obviously one of the world's largest sports. So, you know, since I assume many of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball are similar to myself and Shane and Adi, maybe they're not experts on cricket. So could you give us the 30-second kind of version of how does the game work, and then we'll start diving into the analytics, the value of different types of players, yep. etc. Yeah, well, I think a fun way to start is um, the first ever international sport fixture in, in any sport was actually the USA v. Canada in 1844. Um, so that was the first ever international in cricket or any other game. Um and then cricket basically developed its, its most prestigious format is called Test Cricket, which generally lasts for five days. This is born you know, back in 1877, and this is the kind of the you know the number one most you know the, the traditional and you know most respected format. You have one day cricket then introduced in the sort of 1960s, 1970s, and then 2003 you had T20, which only lasts for about three hours, so it's actually shorter than baseball which is a, a kind of a paradigm. Oh, you're really hurting us with that three-hour sh- And by the way, <laughs> saying something shorter than baseball is not that impressive, but please keep going. Baseball to the... used to be two and a half hours, but, my yeah. record. Well, Tim, let's, yeah, let's hear about a little bit about the, yeah, I was even going to get to this, about how the game works. And so, well, I suppose, you know, the, the obviously similarities with, with baseball, the, you know, the, the, the transatlantic. The cousin, um, obviously, you have a, yeah, so you have a batsman and bowler, so each team has 10 wickets, um, and basically, you try and get as many runs as you can um, before you're all out or you run out of overs, as in the case of T20 cricket. So the big difference between Test cricket and T20, so Test cricket, you can bat, you know, you can bat on and on and on. So the emphasis is on really scoring in quite generally quite a low-risk way, whereas in T20, you have 20 overs and each there's six balls in each over, that's 120 balls. So you need to be pretty bad as a team to get bowled out to lose 10 wickets in 120 balls. Um, and that means you can be much more aggressive. You can really, you can go for it. So the kind of, in test cricket, almost the bowlers are the attackers and the bats are kind of defenders. And it, and those roles are really reversed in T20. It's, it's about trying to do as much damage as a batting team as, as you can during those 20 overs that you've got. I see. And so could you explain us, let's even just start with the, let's call it the analogy to baseball. Um, who's more valuable in cricket? Um, is it the let's call it the pitchers or the bowlers, I guess, or the batters? Who's actually seen as kind of the rarer, more valuable asset? Who gets the big contracts? Yeah, well, this is a really interesting thing. So, so, so in test wicket traditionally, because each team you have two innings, so that's 20 wickets. So 
you can get one bowler potentially can get you know eight or ten wickets in a match. They're obviously incre- they're really really valuable, and you know people always thought yeah, bowls are more valuable in Test cricket, but in in the limited overs format, generally the fifty overs and the T Twenty, the idea is because you have that the resources is more finite. Really, is your number of balls to bat. So there's the idea that batsmen were more more valuable than that, and also batsmen are the stars. You know, they are the guys who hit really hit the balls out of the ground and stuff and. And they, and they have the chance potentially to bat for the whole innings in T20, um, to be there for the whole time, you know, maybe facing 60 or 70 balls out of 120, whereas no bowler can bowl more than 24, which is four overs. So in T20, the, the kind of conventional thinking was the bats were more, were more valuable because it, it's kind of like, you know, you want to score more runs than your opponent. But what, what teams are looking at increasingly have kind of become aware of and some teams have been very successful in is, Actually, bowlers have probably been undervalued on the market because they're a bit a bit less glamorous, and you know. So actually, some teams have been very successful in building teams that prioritise. So let me ask you, more than batting. Yes, yeah, so let me ask you a analytics related question. I'll relate it to the NFL, but then you'll see how it relates to cricket. So in the NFL, it's not that anybody. Let's say someone's doing fantasy sports in the NFL. It's not that people don't believe running backs are unimportant to a team. It's just that they're you know they're not that differential. Like you know, a good running right. back in the NFL may average four point five yards a carry, and a weaker one three nine four zero. But it's not a massive difference. It's hard to how, become one, right? But the one the variation between them isn't that. Well, big. that's my question. So, Tim, how much variation is there between, let's call it, a really good batter? Let's call it one of the great batters, the Mike Trout of cricket. Yeah, the Mike Trout of cricket and an average batter, or between a great bowler and an average bowler? How much variation is there? In terms of wins, or we have a way of, uh, in baseball, we have a way of calculating this. You talk about in, in, in T20? Yeah, let's say in T20. Yeah. Let's say in yeah, T20. T20 yeah, so, I mean, in general, I think, because bowling, basically, the whole, the premise of T20 is set up for teams to hit as many runs as possible to be exciting that way. And actually, that means to stop that happening is kind of a lot harder than to actually do it yourself. And you can kind of be lucky and score a few runs. Whereas you can't really be lucky and and not concede runs, um, so actually I think the the very I mean you can have brilliant batsmen and brilliant bowlers, but it, in general the the kind of greater inefficiency is probably in in bowlers. And actually the thing is because your fifth weakest bowler still needs to bowl for twenty four balls or between them anyway, so you're actually the kind of thing where batting is almost more of a strong link game. You can have two or three batsmen that are amazing and bat your whole inning. Whereas bowling, you need at least five good bowlers because if you know you have one or two weak weak bowlers, that will drag your whole team down. And that's been one of the things that teams have been been kind of trying trying to work through and understand. And and I think the, the big thing in cricket is because it used to be basically an international game, which is, means as a selection, your job is just to rank is X better than Y, which is difficult but not that difficult. And only recently the IPL, Indian Premier League, comes about in 2008. Does the task become, you know, not is he better than him, but how much is he better than him by, and can we build a team in a cleverer way? So cricket in that way is very new to the sort of art and science of actually evaluating how good players are and how much they're worth, because it just, until T20 and really until the Indian Premier League, hasn't been that important. So it's been a real sea change in, in the game, that whole way of thinking. 
So, so it's really interesting in, in cricket is uh, for me is 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 there a, a analogy or or a set of statistics that are like Moneyball for cricket that are comp- comparable to the statistics that we think of in baseball, and um, have they changed over time? Yeah, so th- this this is one of the biggest the biggest shifts really. So traditionally in Test cricket, the all you about a batsman how good they are, they have a batting average, which is how many runs that, that they get for every time they're out. Um, and that is, yeah, the barometer of how good someone is, that's very, very effective in test cricket. But the thing is, in, say, so T20, because you have the balls being so finite, so one of the things that comes about is um, average is not is not everything anymore. You have a, an also average called, uh, a different statistic called strike rate, and that is measuring how many runs someone gets out of every 100 balls. So that is about how fast they score, not how many they score. And what, what you're seeing is teams of traditionally in, in T20, of initially they valued average, because it's a really big number, a little bit too highly, and didn't think about the strike rate as much. Because actually, as I said, you can't, it's difficult to lose all your wickets in 20 overs. You might have a load of guys who only average, they average in the 20s, it doesn't sound great, but if they, you have a lot of them who do that, and they have a high strike rate, you can probably get more runs than teams with uh, higher average um, who don't score as quickly. And there was a very famous game in the last World Cup in 2016, uh, India and the West Indies. Um, and India had a, a strategy about kind of scoring and protecting wickets, and they scored 190 for two. They lost two wickets from 20 overs, um, which sounds like a great score, but they basically valued their wickets too highly because they didn't, you know, they didn't want to get out, and they kind of valued their wickets too highly. And West Indies have an approach that's more about strike rate than average, and they actually they, they sail past that total playing a different brand of, of cricket. And you see one of the interesting parallels. The West Indies, who are the two-time champions, won two of the last three World Cups in T20. Their philosophy of, of batting is essentially based on hitting as many sixes as possible. So you get six runs for hitting it out of the for hitting it. Uh, out of the the ground without it bouncing, and you get four if it bounces, and you get you know one, two, or three if it, um, and you have to run between the wickets. So and there's like an OBP, there's like an OPS, there's like a weighted. Yeah, and and, and, and and there seems to be kind of like you know um, what you're kind of you know, o- illustrating is there it's uh, that this new kind of format has really kind of changed like the style of hit, uh, of, of of batting as well. Like you kind of. This kind of swing for the fences kind of style, where you actually get it out of the uh, out of the grounds, is that much more valuable per unit like opportunity than maybe a more kind of risk adverse. Like you're not as likely to get out, but you also aren't as likely to score as many runs hitting it on the ground. Yeah, exactly. And actually, in our book, uh, um, we explore really the parallels between West Indies in T20 and the Houston Rockets in the NBA. Um, and in both cases, those philosophies are really based on trying to be as efficient as possible when they score. Um, so the West Indies, so the idea of the conventional wisdom was in T20, you need to score off every single ball, which, which is true to a large degree. But what the West Indies realize is that maybe if we allow a few, if we try and go for it more, we'll let a few more balls go that don't, we'll, we'll try, we'll basically go for it and miss a few times. There won't be any runs scored, which sounds inefficient. But they were like, well, if we can get two sixes and over, that's 12, that 12 runs, which is very good. And then, so in that classic match, the semi-final, you had India basically scored off almost every ball. Were very, what's seen as kind of smart, what well, was seen as smart, scoring lots of 
ones and twos and maximising every ball in that way. The West Indies had way more dot balls, which is where you don't score off a ball, but they scored way more sixes. And that was so that was a real... F- As we- of those two philosophies were really interesting. And the West Indies philosophy is, in general, I think a more efficient philosophy. And that's why... They've been so successful in, in T20. As we always say in the NBA, Tim, a three is worth 50% more than two. So we're here talking to yeah. Tim Wigmore. Tim is currently a <laughs> staff writer for the Daily Telegraph. He also contributes to The Economist, 538, etc. He also has a new book out, Cricket 2.0, Inside the T20 Revolution. So, Tim, let me ask you. Um, you mentioned a really interesting statistical difference of saying, is X better than Y? And how much better is X that player X than player Y? Um, can you give us a sense of how our players acquired in cricket, and like what is the economic value system? Like, what kind of statistical modeling is used to kind of value players, and how that's thought about? So the, the amazing thing about cricket um, or the T Twenty leagues is the, the Indian Premier League. It's as far as I know, the only competition in the world that has, that allocates players based on a pure auction system. So you have this amazing system where you have, because many of these teams are owned by Bollywood owners and some of the richest people in India. So they literally go into a room and they will bid for players. Um, and this obviously gets incredibly competitive. And you have, um, you basically had a load of Bollywood owners often trying to go after their favourite players and really being kind of con, you know, they kind of, it's a macho thing almost, and they, they bid against each other. So they pay way over the odds for some players. And you had in the very first season, Southern A, Rajasthan Royals, who were, had the lowest budget team, so they couldn't afford to play this kind of game. And they actually won the tournament by just being a bit smarter and almost kind of holding back their egos. And, and they were smart in terms of, you're only allowed four overseas players per team. And then lots of players, and a lot of teams just sort of got all the best foreign players that, that they could. But obviously, you're, you're allowed up to eight, but if you only pick four, then that's a lot of money you're wasting on guys who you don't actually use. So what Rajasthan Royals did is they... They, they prioritised their the four overseas players they actually wanted and actually spent a lot more of their money on local players. And it turns out that most leagues, although there's so much emphasis on these exciting overseas players, most leagues are won by teams who have the best local homegrown players. It sounds like in, in cricket there's like a, you really need to use your entire, for lack of a better word, pitching staff almost in every game. And the bottom half of your of your ranking system, they matter enormously. You can't like like in baseball. You, you particularly in the playoffs, you just overload your best pitchers, and you almost have a different game. Well, yeah. So that's the thing. Because in, in cricket, so you, the way it works, um, each you're allowed, well, you're allowed as many balls as you like, but uh, each bowler can only bowl a maximum of twenty four balls, which is four overs. So you need you need five people who, who can do that, and so you're going to get one or two that aren't good at that. That you'll leak a lot of runs in, in that time. So. It's probably it's kind of not as exciting to, to get loads of good bowlers or loads of good batsmen, but it works better. So there's a team called Bangalore in the Indian Premier League, and they they got many of the best bats in world cricket. Um, I will name names, but you guys probably won't know them. But they were famous for you know, basically picking all the best batting talent. But their bowling was terrible, and they, they they haven't won the league yet, and they've become a bit of a joke because they just put all their reds in this bat this, the basket of batting. And it means that bowling is not good enough, um, and that kind of, and that's almost the kind of thinking you get if your if who you sign is dictated by the kind of the favourite players or the owners rather than who are actually the smartest picks. So, Tim, we only have about uh, two minutes left. Let me just ask you a quick question: What do you see as the future of analytics in cricket? 
that that shift we talked about, the, the rise of sixes, you know, sixes greater than four. I think that that will continue. Um, a big thing we're going to see more of is scouting will be smarter because there's leagues around the world. It's actually quite a good league in Canada, for example. They're actually they're building a league in USA as well. In recent years, we've seen some really good players from Afghanistan, Nepal, and even a guy called Ali Khan, who's from Ohio. He, he's, he's become a bit of a star in leagues like the Caribbean Premier League, the Bangladesh Premier League. Um, he, he's, done, he's done really well as well. So smart teams are actually looking and finding talent in unlikely spaces. Um, I think that, that will be another big shift. And also this idea that teams, that batsmen used to value their wickets too highly because you know, the traditional measure of how good a player was was how much they averaged. And so there needs to be, and there is a process of kind of retraining batsmen to think out of that thinking. Because if you can average, if you average 40, which sounds very high, but you have quite a low strike rate, that can actually be less valuable to your team than if you average 30 and have a higher strike rate. So it's, it's kind of almost training people out of the old cricket thinking, getting them into this new cricket thinking. That, that's a big, a big challenge, and it's, that revolution is, is ongoing. Um, but it's very interesting to, to watch. Well, so Tim, we'd like to thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. You certainly have educated us quite a bit about cricket. Um, it's really interesting that just like three is greater than two, six is greater than four. And it's interesting that, as you're pointing out, Tim, there are many different styles to win. And we're going to see those competing styles, you know, go against each other and think about, you know, there'll be how much do you have to pay for certain players of a certain style. So, Tim, thank you again for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks very much. And uh, the book is. If guys in America want to want to buy it, um, you can buy it on Amazon or whatever. It's called, called Cricket 2.0. Um, uh, yeah, and, I hope, and it's, it's written in a way that should be accessible for people without knowledge of cricket. Um, so, uh, yeah, please do have a look. Well, thank you. Thank you again for joining us. So, guys, you know, we've gotten our education a little bit about cricket. It's interesting how there's kind of offensive and defensive styles. It's interesting how, in some sense, the design of the game, T20, yeah. has actually changed I'd the like game. I'd like to go see one of these. I'm, yeah. I'm sure there's one played in, in the, oh, in I'm, the I'm Northeast. Ab- I'm, I'm absolutely sure there is. And um, I think it'll be interesting how teams stylistically try to... Uh, score as many runs as they can given the finite nature of the game. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. It's been a new dawn, new era for us, talking about cricket in addition to the MLB and the NBA. Of course, who knows what will happen in the second half of our show. There's only one way to find out. That's to stay with us after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen and Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner. We're here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132. Uh, you can join the conversation. We now actually, since unfortunately our 9 o'clock guest had to cancel due to an emergency, we have one hour of what caught our eye in sports and open call lines. Very easy to call in. Call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. We're happy to chat about any sport. Uh, we're going to actually. We have some MLB plans for this hour. We have golf for this hour. We have some XFL for this hour. So lots of different topics to talk about. So guys, here's something that caught my eye on sports. Um, there was this uh, potential proposed change to the MLB playoffs. 
I'm already grumbling, but well, that's just my let me personality. Just, let me first baseball. just quickly explain to our <laughs> listeners. I'm, I'm with you change. <laughs> let me baseball doesn't change. Yeah, so let me that's let Shane me, Jensen, everybody. Well, let me explain. That was a nice, uh, <laughs> nice, Im- nice impression there. So let me um, let me first tell everybody, just to remind everybody, what our current MLB playoffs uh, scenario is. Um, there's three divisions in baseball in each uh, conference. Uh, those teams uh, win their division; they make the playoffs. Um, there's then two wild card teams, the next two teams with the best records that don't win their division. Uh, they play in a one-game playoff, and then that means in each uh, league you have four teams eventually that qualify for the next round. So it's three plus two. The two play in a one-team playoff, and then they go to what's called the division round, the championship round, then the World Series. So here's the proposed change. You would add two wild card teams to each division, to each conference. Or three. Let's think about it. So it's now they're going to be seven. So no, there would be four wild. So it would be they'd be adding going. They'd be adding two. They'd be, be, sorry, from, they'd be adding two. You're right. They're going from two wild card teams. So there's three to four. divisions. So, so there's three division winners and four wild cards. Correct. And here's the way it would go: the top team in each league would get a buy. The top team. The yeah, one. Just the one. single one. Okay. Yeah. The single one, which is huge. Correct. Mm-hmm. Then. You have the two, three, and four teams, which are two of them are division winners. One's the top wild card team. Now, here's the strangest part of yeah. it. <laughs> the team that's two, let's rank them one to seven in each league. One gets a bye. Two gets to decide of five, six, and seven who they play. They pick. Then, of course, three gets to pick of the two that are left. Four actually plays whoever's remaining. It's a three-game series with all of the games at the higher-seated team. That's the proposal oh, so the home that's team, out there. The right, home team. Right, it's yeah. like a series. Right, it's right, like right. a baseball. Yeah, yeah. Your class. So they really want to favor the, the teams that that are better. They want to favor the teams that are better, and even give it a, an advantage, assuming the the number two team can pick better. They want to give them an advantage over three and four, and then it would proceed as normal. Because if you think about it. There's three series in each league, three advanced. Now you're down to four teams again. So it's basically an expansion. It's expanded wild, wild it's card. It's an expansion wild card. It moves it from a one-game playoff to a best of three. It means – so that's basically – and this selection process. So let me start – So, so yeah. yeah, I mean the only thing that I – First of all, I don't like change. Can I hear that? That uh, no, no. You, I mean, <laughs> that, I, I, that, that, that's true. But let me true. ask you, you let me ask a specific but... statistics question before. Let's imagine – that the goal of the playoffs is to identify the best team. Let's imagine that were the goal. We could debate that, but let's imagine that's the goal. Do you think this change in design leads to an increased probability that the best team wins the World Series? No, no, no. Okay, so no. tell us why. So the reason for this is that playoffs are still going to have a huge amount of randomness. Even though it's a rig to, to give the better teams advantage, it's still it's still baseball, and baseball has an enormous amount of uncertainty. Home field advantage in baseball is a, a couple of percentage points, 52 no. and a half, compared to what we're talking about with basketball, nearly so 60%. you're saying increasing the pool of teams in the playoffs. It just by makes that, things more random, effect. right? That's, and yeah. the season yeah. is is where you really learn who the better teams are, for, and then you want to like match up the couple of really best ones and let them play it out and see who wins and and even that's a, a somewhat of a coin toss but at least you're 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 settling on the field between absolute you know top top teams the old days I'm going to say there were two leagues they, and then the, the champion the Yankees, each were, league the, Yankees played just, the, the Yankees started in the World <laughs> Series <laughs> right. and then we played a regular season to see who they'd play but, but you have to recognize but uh, that went well by the way I yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I like they won that. a lot of World but, Series but, but people don't even realize those leagues 
leagues were very separate. I mean, they were completely yeah. different organizations, and then they kind of united under a commissioner, but they still had their enormously different characters. I mean, I, even as a child, I remember I was a, I was a Yankees fan, so the American League was the, my league, the National League. Who were they? Uh, and just like almost like a different sport. They played each other in the All Star Game and the World Series, and now all this merging and all this the interleague play and all these extra teams are coming in. It's it's it's, it's somewhat different product, and and I don't think it identifies the the, the, the and, and rewards the best team during. But the I season. would imagine there. Let's, let's talk about you know we are a business yeah. show too. Let's talk about the business side. So obviously. This is it what it's expands about. the number of teams no, that are still it, active. Exactly, so that, that games that, matter. That, I think that's clearly their kind of uh, their their the reason for this or this initiative is that they want more teams to kind of meaningful games consider in themselves September. in playoff contention late in the season. In part because you know I think they want to somewhat eliminate this kind of buyer and seller thing that happens at the trade deadline in baseball. I, or at least I think they want to reduce mm. that kind of player movement a little bit because it's you know i mean i think it's just kind of seen like at least by the league as 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 negative for the fan experience i could also imagine that um playoff baseball is you know a lot of people like it's more more exciting so in other words i'm sure the ratings why not you know there's 162 regular season games for every team but you know the playoffs are where the ratings go up dramatically yeah. in baseball. So why not produce more of those you, you units? Get, you I also, think that's what you it's about. also get to charge people to go to them. Yeah, as I think well, that's so. what it's about. It's about more more games that people yeah. will watch. And are, are but like, I, I think so, this so kind of so, I, I think the most interesting part of this is not so much that they expand or are considering expanding the number of teams because we've already kind of presented the financial arguments for doing that. It's it's putting this kind of, like, t- selection part in. That is very strange. You know, I, I think that's kind of intriguing. I, I, do you- I don't like it. I mean, I have to tell you, the advantage to being number one is immense, to yeah. avoid that first round. Uh, is huge, and also the depletion in your staff. You won't have to. You'll be advantaged in the second round. And I also don't like it because in the divisions in, the, in, in baseball, the – interleague play, not interleague, but within your division, you play each other much more. So the Yankees are in a, in very competitive with the Red Sox, the Rays, Orioles, whoever. And uh, so they, they play the twice as many games against each yeah. other. I mean, it's crazy. Back when we were in the old days, here we go again, <laughs> they had a balanced schedule within the American National League. Everybody played each other yeah. the same number. I don't know That's not true so anymore. This is actually, so it's not fair. I hadn't to, thought love... about this, but it, it's actually from a it, well, I mean, it's maybe this way now for the AL East, but you're right. In some sense, it's not fair given the large advantage this gives the one. It's a huge right. advantage yeah. of come, the one, and therefore... The Yankees you know, and Red Sox beat each other I, up. I, I, I kind of favor the current system where we do give a substantive advantage to the divisional. Yeah, that's, that's right. Fine. Or division winners, you know, in, 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 one, in some sense you can view the current system as... You know, there's two wild card teams and three divisions, and all three of the division winners get a buy. Right, that's right. Yeah, no, that is it. That is right. I mean, I, 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 if I was to change things up, I would have you could have maybe an entire like you could add a couple wild card teams, but then just have an additional kind of round of the playoffs where it's only the wild card teams that play and then come out of it and go to the divisional round. I'm all for having potentially more teams in kind of playoff contention, but I like our current system for kind of enforcing like an advantage. Winning the division I also don't like the the, the proposal here where, I mean, I understand they're doing it to give, again, the higher seed an advantage, but having all the games at at the home, like 
having all the games of this like kind of first round in in the one stadium at you know for the higher team i mean that's just not you but know you for know the, why they have the to fa- do it they have to do it because let's imagine you don't do that i thought about yeah. this quite a bit so now let's say, i'll make it up let's say the yankees play the angels all right too so, much travel yeah uh, that, so and you probably can't have the home team have the first two because you don't want the away team to have the deciding game so you could have to go yankees angels yankees all right yeah well that means now yankee game Day in between of travel, Angels game, day, day in between. between of travel. It sounds now, very tiring, just like the playoffs are tiring like in every other no, no, sport. No, no, but now you're extending. I mean, you want the Yankees and the Red Sox playing in an ALDS in on uh, November the 10th they also with want to get 25 degrees. They want to get this done yeah, I mean, quick. This is a problem with baseball is that you're running against, against weather. the weather. And, and, and they've extended it all like back. crazy. And by the way, they have Start shifted back. March. They are. We are already playing in March, which is we are. We, yeah. so, keep this, that we, used going. To, we used to start playing around April fifth to eighth. That March twenty sixth. This the year it's day. March twenty sixth. So they've. This is this more. This it's more. It's more baseball. No, guys. I, actually, it's Matt, freezing. No, Matt Dats has got. It's going to be less suggestion. freezing over time. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good point. Yeah. Let's bring back the old days. Play more doubleheaders. Yeah, yeah, that was huge. You know, we could also have a more trunk, uh, a more kind of compact regular season schedule. I'd be down with that. Well, they don't get many doubleheaders are amazing. Oh, I, they, they, just, I, poor I guys! Sure. I think I talked about this on the show once, where I discovered in my um, in my memory boxes, I've been going through my some of my parents' boxes, an old Mets schedule from the nineteen sixties, the late sixties. I don't know why I had a Mets schedule. I think my dad put it on my door the year I was born. There were eighteen doubleheader schedules, scheduled doubleheaders. Yeah, back but then. real doubleheaders, real doubleheaders, not double the headers. day night fake. No. Double- Real double headers. The real yeah. double headers. We could do That's more right. of that. Well, there wasn't anything it. to watch well, on TV. E- either back way, then, right? I just thought it was. <laughs> I just do, thought... do you guys like? I, I don't. I haven't. I mean, I only just heard about this now. Do you guys think this is going to get much? Tra- do you, like, I heard I mean, the players I, are against. The it. players are against. Yeah. It. So no, no. I mean, what's more? Well, they here's have what to I do. think will happen. I think the re- reality is, though, um, they also like money. So <laughs> I think what you're going to end up happening is. By the way, just so you know why this is being discussed now is the current collective bargain right. agreement in baseball ends after next season. There's this season and next season. So they're talking about this for 2022. They're just throwing stuff out there on the yeah. table. If you went to the players' union and said, let's take the Shane Jensen version, which is instead of two wild card teams, imagine there were four. Yeah. They play in some four-team playoff, and then only one emerges, like one emerges now from the two. But it led to some increased piece of pie that would go to the players. Trust me, that will happen. As a matter of fact, yeah. this will happen. If you and say in fact, the, the NFL is kind of basically considering too. the same sort sure. of strategy for resolving its CBA differences. Is 18 a, a weeks. Bigger chunk of the pie, but you have more games, so Correct. bigger revenue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there is a price by which... You know, the stupidity of it will absolutely take over oh, yeah. due to the economics of it. So either way, it'll be interesting to see. But right now, I don't see this version. I just think the reason people yeah. found it interesting is, why did Rob Manfred even release this proposal? I think people are like, really? Like, it's good this? bargaining because you start off with something crazy, and then when you when you throw out something that's a little less yeah. crazy, it seems, yeah. no. it seems palatable. That's right. <laughs> All right, so guys... Uh, Congrats to them for starting out with something somewhat crazy. Yep. <laughs> well, either way, that's some interesting stuff going on in the world of baseball. There's some stuff going on in some other sports. So... Um, there's golf going on this week. It's actually one of the, let's call it one of the semi-larger non-majors a week. It's the Riviera. It's one of the big tournaments that, you know, I think nine of the top 10 players in the world are there, 38 of the top 40, so including Tiger Woods back mm-hmm. playing this week. So this is a couple of things I looked at. I, I wanted to look at, so something else happened this week in golf. So Rory McIlroy, Northern uh, uh, Irishman, um, is now back to number one player in the world. 
Replacing who? Brooks Kepka. Okay. Who, by the way, just so everyone knows, I think out of the last eight majors or nine, Brooks Kepka has won four of them. Anybody guesses here? As you guys know, there's four majors a year. Um, when did Roy McElroy win his last major? Any guys have? And by the way, he has four of them, just so you know. He has four majors in total. Does anybody want to guess when he won his last one? Like four years ago, something like that? Six years ago. Okay. So it, let me say why I wanted to bring this up. So first of all, it's clear that you don't have to win majors to be the number one ranked player in the world. Second, when people said, oh my God, Tiger Woods has gone years without winning a major. Well, Roy McIlroy is the number one player in the world, and he supposedly was the next generation great player. He hasn't won a major. As a matter of fact, he hasn't won a major since age 24. He has not won a major in six so, so years. So he's only 30. He's 30. Which is prime, By young, no, but I'm just for, saying, yeah. he's not won a major to in do. six years. The other thing it made me look at is, so I started to think about winning majors in golf, and here's... There's only four years, is that right? Mm-hmm. What? How many four years? Four years. Four years. Okay. So it's like, like tennis. It's like tennis, yeah. absolutely. Well, here's this is going to be my comparison. So I started to compare, you know, now that Woods is at 15 majors, I started to compare Nicholas versus Woods. And there was an interesting comparison. People don't know, Nicholas has 18 majors in his career. Woods has 15. Those are the only two that anybody would consider the greatest golf players of all time. So you'll see why I'm doing this comparison in a second. So here are the four majors in golf. There's the Masters, of course, the U.S. Open, the British Open, and the PGA. Interestingly, Nicholas has won all of them at least as many times as Tiger Woods has. So let me say why I'm saying this. Nicholas has won six Masters four U.S. Opens, three British, and five PGAs. Woods has won five Masters, three U.S. Opens, three British, and four PGAs. The reason I came to my mind to think about this is, first of all, it's hard to argue, at least in the great tournaments, Woods is better because he didn't win any of the four majors more times than Nicholas did. But I contrast that now with tennis. So we have Nadal with huge, 19. Um, huge this bias, is, this is yeah. what I'm saying. So Nadal has 19 majors. But 12 of them, I say but, 12 of them are the French. You know, you I hate to say it, but you eliminate the French, and he's John McEnroe. Yeah. You have Djokovic, who's got 17 majors now, but eight of them are at the Australian Open. You've got Federer, who's got, maybe this is just Federer's greatness. Federer's got 20 majors, eight Wimbledons. He's still got 12 others, by the way. But it's interesting to me how... Dominant, they each have for a surface. Yeah. Now, golf, there isn't really the same surface. Well, kind that, of thing. yeah, I mean, I think the greater thing is that, like, golf, though there are certainly structural and, and, and kind of surface differences between these different majors, it's not as substantial as the differences in tennis. Couldn't they ro- rotate the courses also for the majors? So, so, let's for, be clear. For a couple the, of them. Okay. So, the Masters, no. The Masters, yeah. always at Augusta. Um, yes, the, the U.S. Yes. Open, yeah. the British, and the PGA absolutely rotate courses. But 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 the British, d- despite the rotation, the British Open is obviously on a very kind of Links different type course. style course right. than bunker, the others. You know, anyway. b- bunkers yeah. that are severe penalty. The U.S. Open is always the heavy, rough course. If you don't drive the ball in the fairway, you kind of hack it out. What was also interesting, it made me think about tennis, was I wanted to think about how great each of these guys have been in the finals. And let me say why I looked at that. So you guys don't remember, but there was a period where Serena Williams was something like 23-2 and two in major finals, or 22-2. and two. She's now 23-10. and 10. She's lost a bunch of major finals in a row. But here's Federer, Nadal's, and Djokovic's record in major finals. And shockingly, they're in diff- there's no difference, essentially. Federer's 20-11. and 11, Nadal's 19-8. and eight, 
and Djokovic is 17 and 9. It's nice they're all two can, and one. It's nice I mean, they all kind of just trade off. No, no. But what's interesting about that is they're playing each other. No, yeah. no. I get that. But what it basically <laughs> says is, you know, they're winning about two, two out of three on, yeah. their, on, their, on their own, on their courts. own, on, yeah. their, on the courts that favor them. No, no. Them. That's overall. Yes, yeah. I know no, that. No. But that's how it comes from. Well, no, no. What it actually says is, if you elu- uh, if you eliminate, an example, if you eliminate Nadal's twelve French Open titles, of which he's been to the final twelve times and won all twelve. When he lost, he didn't lose in the finals. He's seven and eight in That's major right. finals, yeah. yep. and the same you could say. I mean, yeah, if you eliminate, you eliminate all their, their five hundred, yes, they're right. five hundred in the finals. That's right. So which is the, kind uh, of in tennis, is the U.S. Open the one that's kind of the most high, like like the one that has the least amount of dominance of one player? The U.S. Open would be considered the one with the least amount of dominance, and it, the reason that's probably true, actually, it's the court, right? It's it's a fast the court, fast surface, and so fast courts, very tall, hard hitting well, servers. Well, that's, that's the problem. Can come that, can come in there and just like blow it that's out. That's why the one major that Andy Roddick won, U.S. Open. Yep. You get John Isner, six foot ten, six foot eleven. There on any given day, if he serves 50 aces, you're going to lose to John Isner. And so that's shorter points, yep. lower ranked yeah. players with big serves can win it, so you don't see that degree so, of dominance. So let me ask a question, because one of the things that we always talk about, uh, about the dominance or the historical dominance of, say, Federer and Nadal and Djokovic, is that they've been playing each other so much, which means that this is an era where they're clearly the best players who've ever lived. I don't think you really would doubt that. I don't think there's any doubt and, about that. So let's go to golf now. Um, Nicholas and, and, and Woods are considered the, probably the two best golfers. Did Nicholas play in a time where there was amazing competition? Yes, and, and yes. He did. Okay, so is it, and is there any way we can compare errors in golf, or do people even do that? Is that something that, that people have thought of? <laughs> Yeah, no, it is. I mean, Nicholas played at a time when he, I mean, he was kind of at the tail end of Arnold Palmer at the start of his career, but the kind of peak of his career, he had these epic battles with uh, Tom Watson that, you know, Lee Trevino. You know, Lee Trevino. Yeah. Those would be the great players. And also towards the, you know, he did win a major in 1980, which was the U.S. Open, then 86. And in 1986, So then yeah. you had, you know, you had Greg Norman and Seve Ballesteros, and you had other large number of major winners. But yeah, I think people think, and actually, by the way, people always forget this. You know, Jack Nicklaus does have 18 majors. I'm pretty sure I don't have this wrong. I think he ended up second in a major 20 times. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, so actually his... When per- that that's another reason, by the way, people. I don't want to give an edge. They were both great players. Sometimes people give an edge to Tiger. Tiger doesn't have fifteen seconds in a major, and you've we've all seen Tiger's win percentage. Like when Tiger's leading going into he the wins. final he round, he's like fifty-four yeah. and two, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. and you know he never loses when he's ahead. And actually, it wasn't true for Nicholas. But yeah, right. I, yeah, people have done but it. I'm also kind of it's kind of like do you do you fault it? Like like again, if you had a quarterback that was like. Four and four in Super Bowls versus a quarterback that was four and zero oh in Super Bowls. Would you favor the one that was four and four in Super yes. Bowls or four and zero? Oh? I would I, the one that's four and four. I would favor as well. Right to, to making it is, yeah. an, is an incredible achievement. But also, how about the field? I mean, so we know in golf that there's a lot of randomness, and and that even the best players, even mm-hmm. the top five, six, seven, are not con- collectively fifty percent likely to win a tournament. So how has the field changed? I mean, great and, question. So and and I actually let's compare this to, to other sports, but I think that in basketball, for example. The field has gotten better. I mean, you know, it's incredible talent. I mean, obviously the top is incredible, but it goes deep as well. How about golf? I mean, how is how is your fiftieth ranked player? Compared? Oh, I think 
I think if I had to, to guess, yesteryear. well, let's use our metric that we always use for golf or tennis. How many players would we have to go down to get to a 50% odds? Like you would take mm-hmm. that group versus the field. I think there's no doubt there's greater depth in golf today than there was. I mean, people even compare that to Tiger, the beginning of Tiger Woods era, which was the late 90s. Um, yeah, there was great competition then. Maybe eight to ten players, really, that were going to probably win a major back then. Now, it would not shock anybody if the 50th ranked right male wins. player right. in the world That's won right. a major. So not it seems to me that, that that judging a, a player by today's standards is really hard because the competition is stiff. Maybe not as at the super top, but just at the down is just, just it, it doesn't it doesn't drop so fast, and you can expect. I think even at the super top, like the top ten guys. In, in, in golf now versus the top ten. I mean, again, we we I guess we start off by saying that Nicholas played in an era with good competition. He certainly but did, at the top, but I think but I, not I, in the depth. Not, no, not, not in the depth. Not the, right, like, so that's the how he could yeah. win that Overall. many tournaments and come in second place so yeah. clearly. I mean, I think you. I don't think you're going to see a Nicholas ever again with with the with the twenty wins or how, eighteen wins. Did you say they were eighteen majors? Eighteen, win, yeah. 18 majors and and nearly as many seconds. second places. You're just not going to see that. Almost in his prime, you. You, you can expect him to be at the, at the leaderboard in, in the majors, yeah. either winning or second. Well, guys, we also, maybe before we get to the XFL, we also still have, we talked about this a little bit last week, before we totally abandon and leave the NBA, we also have this other really interesting phenomenon going on in the NBA right now. Um, you guys obviously know for years, you know, we've always said three is worth 50% more than two, and the team that has kind of, you know, driven that home is the Houston Rockets, which takes more threes than any other team in the NBA. Um, they're now also doing something to even you know exacerbate that point, which is um, they traded, you could argue, their third best player, Clint Capella, um, and they're now starting our former sixer, Robert Covington, mm-hmm. at center. So he's the tallest player they're playing. Let's say he's listed at 6'7". I always saw him 6'6". They're six, probably six, not. Six, I mean, no, they're, always, they they're, always, no, they're always a little shorter than they list them at. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. He's probably yeah. not he's six probably foot not six seven. Yeah. But let's even say he's the same bias that everybody right. else is. So let's say he's six foot seven. That's their plan. They're gonna play five guys, a large number of minutes, that are all six foot seven to basically mm. six four. They're gonna play a bunch of six four to six seven players, and that's the way they're gonna roll in the playoffs. Any thoughts about that? Uh, I don't know enough about basketball, but it's to to really know. But it seems like well, how will this affect their rebounding? Yeah, I mean, or, or it's like you know, do they spend any time in the paint at all? Well, it's a good question about whether you can get threes open if you can't actually yeah. have someone down in the but lane. Also, isn't also to recover? I mean, one of the things about threes is that they tend. I mean that they bounce wildly, a little bit more wildly, and you need to be able to recover them. Is Do big men no, well, have any functionality to, re- to recover balls, miss shots? Big men do if the ball comes off traditionally. So, yes. a matter of fact, yeah. you're making an argument for faster, quicker players, Maybe that's, which that's is it. Yeah. given they're shooting threes and the higher variance of the rebounds, and a lot more balls, I'll say, hit the floor because it's not just dropping straight down, you might want faster yeah. people that get to the ball more quickly. But on the defensive well, side, it matters as well. Well, actually, well that's, that's, this is a great no. question. I like, do, do, have people studied sort of like, you know, different rebounding kind of strategies yes. for 
three yes. heavy teams versus two heavy yes. teams. Yes, they're absolutely. They, they've looked at the angle of deflection, the length yeah. of the ball. But, Adi, you brought up something that leads to something else. So let's say you now want to – this is actually really interesting from a statistical perspective. Let's say you want to take advantage of the Rockets. Okay? So how are you going to take advantage of them? I put that in quotes. You're going to bring in the big men. Three's more than two. So now you're getting the other team to take possibly less threes. Yeah. That's a good thing for the Rockets. The second th- uh, I'm just saying, the second thing you could argue for the Rockets' point of view is... But 95%, so the other t- what? 95% probability is better no, than 38%. No, but it's still not 95. It's still not 95. The other thing you could argue is, well, the other team's going to crash the boards. Great. That means I get more fast bake points because when the rebound comes off, all their guys are under the basket. Now I can even run more than I could run before. So you could imagine that there's a, I'll call it a statistical synergy where now I shoot more threes, you shoot less threes. I'm happy about that. I get more fast break points, less half-court offense. And by the way, you really only need the big men in the half-court no. offense. You don't want the big men in the fast break game. You could make an argument. This is a brilliantly clever strategy to maximize your own threes, minimize the other team's threes, and maximize the number and of fast break points. And we haven't even factored points. in that you probably, if another, if you force another team to kind of crash the boards or occupy the paint more than you are, they're probably fouling more, too. Well, that's another possibility. Yeah. You, you could make an argument that they have to foul your guys more yep. also because your guys, you know, who would you rather have? Or, Quick- just, or just that more fouls occur close to the basket. So if you're kind of occupying that space more, if you're actually occupying the space around the periphery, you're probably, you know, your own players are fouling the other team less. Uh, listen, what advantage does a seven foot one Joel Embiid have against a six foot six? A team that has nobody even close to his height. I mean, just throw this out. All I can think about is that if you think about when I last played basketball, whenever there was someone who was a giant compared to everyone else, it just it was almost unfair. How will that play out in the professionals? I mean, well, a, a team seven one, another guy at, at six eleven. A, a, forget it. I mean, these guys are pretty quick. I mean, you watch these Ben Simmons and Joel. I mean, they're very tall, but they're they're not slow. So. What does it mean to have a team that no one over 6'6"? So I I can imagine a couple things. One is um, I would imagine the taller team would have a huge advantage on the offensive rebounding. That would Mm -hmm. probably be the number one place that they would have an advantage. Um, The second thing is, we talked about this a little bit last week. I gave an example on the Houston Rockets. I think I used Eric Gordon as an example. We talked about this. This guy weighs the same as Joel Embiid. So he's 6'5", let's call it 250. They list Embiid at 250. He's 7'1", 250. No, but here's my point. Let's assume they're roughly the same weight. We know Joel Embiid's probably 320, but let's assume they're roughly <laughs> two, not. 280. But whatever. Let's assume they're the same weight. You could imagine, next we should get a physicist on the show, small guy, low center of gravity, pushes big center one further step away from the basket. Now, all of a sudden, you're, I know you were being facetious, now your 95% guy that's dunking the ball is now 12 feet away from the hoop as opposed to 6 feet away from the hoop because the guy with the smaller the smaller but stockier body can push him under away from the basket. Now, all of a sudden, Embiid's shooting 55% from the field instead of, being right next to the basket, you could argue it's harder to get the primary shot against a smaller, more physical defender that can push you away. I could easily imagine that being true. Okay. But we can yeah. measure it. But we on can the other hand, measure it. And, 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 I mean, do we even, like, are the Houston Rockets even now, are, is their offensive rebounding substantially lower than other teams? Well, here's, here's a stat that um, 
Matt put on the screen for us here. So right, I mean, this is just one game. The Lakers and Rockets played after the trade. So this was, you know, Mm -hmm. the start of small ball for the Rockets. Uh, Anthony Davis, the big man for the Lakers, did have 32 points and 13 rebounds in the game. Although we could argue he gets that every game. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But each team had six offensive rebounds. I mean, it's just one game. We'll look. Yeah. We'll, I'll look at last night's box score. By the way, in the small ball era, uh, Houston beat the Celtics last night. A very impressive win and basically raked them. I mean, it wasn't particularly close. I think the final was maybe an 11, 12 point difference. Yeah. But again, so Houston has beaten the Lakers in small ball so far. They've beaten the Celtics in small ball so far. I think they're, I know they're undefeated since they started it's, this. It's small incredible. Ball. We, 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 first it was sprawl ball and now it's small ball. Basketball is changing in front of our eyes. Yeah. Yeah, and we also see here, by the way, just last night's game, thanks to Matt again, um, the Celtics had 48 rebounds in the game, 10 offensive rebounds. The Rockets had 45 rebounds and 5 offensive rebounds. So clearly, they're willing to give up something potentially on the rebounding side to again say, you know, three's worth a lot more than two. I'm just interested to see how this plays out. And if this does, let me just say, if this turns out to be you know, let's call it a wave of the future. I think we all agree this would be a tremendous difference in the way that the NBA is played. If yeah. everybody essentially in the future ends up being between six foot, six two, whatever, and six eight, six nine, that essentially there will be no more big men in the NBA. Well, except I mean, I think the you know there's an equilibrium. There's going to be a back and forth equilibrium. We what we might have to you know what we might see 20 years in the future is that if you want to be a big man in the NBA, you better be able to still be able to do things like shoot threes and all this stuff. It it, it might just kind of there'll be a different kind of big man in the NBA basically. I think what'll be interesting also to look at just from a let's call it a you asked uh Tim our cricket player, our cricket person about, you know, what are the kind of the money ball metrics for cricket? It would be interesting to decide so what what is it that we would track? I mean, we'd have a couple games here. So we could look at offensive rebounds, but what is it that we would look at to determine, let's say besides just wins and losses, that would suggest that what the Rockets are doing is successful? Would it be the defense of the? Would it be the uh, you know their offensive efficiency, the number of threes taken by the other team, the offensive rebounding rate? Like I'm sure there's lots of things we could look at that would give us kind of a better picture than wins losses, which has variability in it. I'd right. be interested in tra- in seeing what metrics. Those I have are. to say I'm I, I I don't know I don't follow basketball statistics as deeply as I probably should, but. The numbers you just tossed out are surprising. I would have expected more offensive rebounds per game than than they seem to be. No, that's about right. So matter why fact, is it so few? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a couple of reasons. Uh, one is remember um, the offensive team is usually the defender plays interior. in between. In, yeah, the interior. interior. They're the yeah. interior person. Yeah. So. I'd rather be closer to the basketball than further from the basketball. That's the other thing. Second, um, right before the shot, the offensive players are trying to score and the defensive players are trying to secure the rebound. So, I mean, it's also what they're trying to do. So it's not just the location mm-hmm. of the players, which is the biggest part of it, but it's also what is the each of those five players on offense and defense trying to do before that shot is taken. So right. it's that too, but no, I'm not that surprised that it's you know. But, if but I, it's also probably quite susceptible to some some small but nevertheless important variations. So if you go from six offensive rebounds to say eight or nine, that's a, a substantial well, number you, of extra what, points. Well, what mm-hmm. you have to do is you have to do you know. Assuming I'll do, you convert them, well, I'll yeah. do the envelope math. Well, Half of them, well I would maybe. imagine the 
shooting percentage on offensive rebound plays has to be higher than just on your average play. Because first of all, you're probably getting it near to the basket. Secondly, the defense is scattered. But let's even assume you get three or four extra possessions a game. That could lead to two extra points in a game, which is actually quite a bit in the yep. NBA. I mean, that would move you, just to give you an example, that would move you from a medium team in point differential, going back to our original topic, right. to probably a 75th percentile team. If your point differential changed by two because of four offensive rebounds in a game, that would move you from a 41-win team to like a 50-win team. And the reason why I throw this out is that the gap, we've never seen a gap like this, potentially, where no the team, entire team has no one taller than six six, and and playing against opponents where they have seven footers. That's a by the way they have them, they just don't play them. They're still oh, I are see. they They're still they still, they play still them. have well, them. They, that's what really matters. Yeah, that's what really it matters who actually <laughs> plays. Well, this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go. Lots of interesting topics on sports and statistics and business to talk about. Stay with us and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here this morning with Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation for our last uh, segment of the show, very easy to do. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight sixty six. Hopefully, you're following us. All throughout the week on Twitter at, at @wmoneyball, and again, if you want to email a question to our producer Matt Datz, feel free to do so at businessradio at siriusxm.com. So, guys, um, there was kind of a, I guess, a new sports league that launched last week, the XFL. Uh, we actually had the president of the Washington, I think it was Defenders, the right? DC Defenders, the DC yeah. Defenders last week, uh, talking about they won, by the way, which was yeah. nice to see. Just a couple of things that caught my eye about the XFL, and then I'd love to get your thoughts. So, first of all, the attendance was somewhere, the in person attendance was somewhere around 17 to 18,000 per game. So, I was thinking, well, okay, I mean, it's certainly, um, if you were at a 70,000-seat stadium, that would seem sparse. But as we remember, a number of the stadiums are 20,000-seat yep. yeah, yeah. stadiums. That would certainly be interesting. Um, on TV, they averaged 3.3 million viewers. So that's not particularly high, but it's not per- it's not horribly low. Like an NFL game would probably have somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 10 million viewers. So it's not great, but it's not horrible. Um, the length of the game. You remember Eric mentioned that uh, they were tr- they didn't quite meet their goal of two hours forty five, but it was two hours fifty six was the average length of the game. But here's the point that we talked about last week that was the most interesting for me. So, obviously in the NFL, touchdown is scored. You can either kick the extra point, or you can of course go for two from the two yard line. Those are your choices. In the XFL, there is no extra point kicking. You have to go for something other than an extra point after a touchdown. There were 19 touchdowns in the first week. 11 people went for one point. Okay, so Which that's is from the two-yard line? From the two-yard line. Eight people went for two points. That's from the five-yard line. And nobody went for three points, which was from the ten-yard line. And just to let you know the success rate, I mean, it's obviously tiny, tiny success numbers. Success rate from the... NFL? No, no, for the XFL. Okay. We know of the 11 tries from that went for one point, teams were 4 for 11. 
That's not good. Not good. Mm. From the five-yard line, they were three for eight. That's about the same, and it's double the points. Well, that's yeah. what we're getting to. And nobody, we have no data yet. Yeah. Right, nobody right. went for it from the 10. So any thoughts about both the success rate? Yeah, and like- I mean, I think, first of all, they're not, it's, not, it's not linear. It doesn't go down. I think the expected value goes up as you go back, without, I think without question. You're seeing, we see that here. But I even think from the 10-yard line, I think your chance of success is probably about 25%. Or thirty percent, which suggests that it's a better play than even uh, the two. Why do you play? think then that nobody did it? I think there's a risk aversion. I think among coaching, just like there is in the yeah. NFL, and I think you know, I, I think that three point play is probably at least initially going to be kind of reserved for context. It's only going to be attempted in context. Well, you're losing when they actually yeah. need it. Right, you know, like to like they need like a nine point play or something like that. To and stay when you in the say game. need, do you mean to tie the game? Like for example, if I scored a touchdown with no time left on the clock to go, let's call it down by two, so I'm down eight. Am I going for three to win the game? Oh, that, I mean, I, I well, would love to see yeah. somebody do that, but again, that kind of risk tolerance we don't see a lot in NFL coaching. We see it a little bit more in college, but we don't see a lot in NFL coaching. So I think probably we're not going to see that at least initially here in the XFL. But I guess the math you would have to do is, well, let's do the math. Let's say you go for two. So first of all, there's a certain probability you'll make it. Let's even just say for the moment that's 50%. I'd say it's about probably a little high, but yeah. But let's just say it's 50%. Well, that just gives you a tie. Then let's assume it's a coin flip as to who ends up winning the game. So you've now given yourself a 25% win percentage. Now the question is, going for it from the 10-yard line, if you're at 25%, I'm just saying envelope mass suggests... No, no, envelope mass suggests they're not that miscalibrated. Like, in other words, you should be roughly indifferent between going for three... And by the way, I'm assuming... Is it it only twice as... Is it more or less... Than twice as hard to score to get ten yards than it is to get five no, yards. No, on I a think Adi's play. right. It's probably not fifty percent. No, I you're don't not know. scoring fifty percent from the five yard line. Well, probably but, not. But, but it may not be twenty five percent from the ten either. Yeah. But it could be two to one. No, it could. But, it, but be that that's you have to be because you're you're sacrificing in the case where you're going tying going to overtime versus just winning outright. You know, you're, that 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 tie is fifty percent. You're you're reducing right. your odds of winning by fifty percent. No, I'm, I'm saying if the yeah. ratio for three to two yeah. is greater than two to one, yeah, you should do it. Yeah. So I think there's two things you have to clarify here. One is there's an expected value calculation and there's win probability calculation. You guys have been talking about the win probability calculation in a particular unique situation where you're down by two. Yeah, you it's can right the end of the, ga- right so, the game, so, so the expected value right. is the win probability, so basically. So, so in this particular example, it's it's success is winning and not not yeah. succeeding. But I think over the long run, you have to think of this in terms of, in terms of the entirety of the game. It's your first score. What do you yeah. do now? And you have to recognize that all the three choices have less than 50% probability of success. Even from the two, the five, or the ten. Why not from the two? Yeah. In the NFL, going from the two would probably Well, at least be... we saw four and 11 no, here. No, no, no. I'm just saying that... Uh, they're about 50% in the NFL, historically. I kinda, I, going I kinda, for two? Going for two. I think they do it from the two-yard line, right? So it's a, it's a usual NFL conversion is about 50%. So I would guess that a 10-yard conversion is probably... A 10-yard conversion, if you will, is probably 20-25%, which yeah. means that that's a substantial well, expected so let me ask value. You, so this is my question to you. Um Let's forget the unique endgame situations where, in some sense, as Shane said, expected value and win probability are essentially the same. Why wouldn't, if you believed that 25%, let's just, just for round math, for, for three points, 50% for one point, 
Well, that's a ratio of two to one, but you're getting three to one. Yep. I, I call that pot odds. You can call it lots of different yeah. things you want to say in sports. Better bet. It's a better <laughs> bet. Yep. So, and, and I think I think teams are gonna kind of. It's new, right? So teams I don't think are, are you know even though they knew this rule was there, I think I think it's gonna probably take like you know some some time for kind of teams to adopt this. But I'm I'm intrigued by it because I think you could kind of like have certain teams essentially putting more of their resources into designing kind of goal line plays. There's a lot of points now. You know, like potentially like half the points you score are going to be in these weird well, that's convert, very interesting. convert kind of goal line situations or a third of the points you score probably are going to be in, in these kind of situations. And so, you know, you're going to just now I think it kind of creates sort of a, a substrate for a lot of innovation and in kind of goal line offense well, I think and you, goal line you defense. Up, it, what'll be interesting to now observe is a couple things. First, do we see as let's say at a time series kind of way? Do we see a change over time in the number, the fraction of times teams go for one, two, or three? That'll be interesting to study. Your point also is, once teams start to realize maybe that it's better to go for two and three, do we see the success rate change over mm-hmm. time? Now, yeah. obviously, these are going to be small data numbers, so it's going to be hard to notice any statistical trend without, I don't even know if it will be within a season we'll be able to see this, but to me, it's both does the attempt rate change and the success rate change? Yeah. I'm interested in, obviously, both of those, because you're right. They're not unrelated in that if I knew I was going to go for three all the time, I'd design different plays. I might have taller players. I might have different players that are more likely to convert three, yep. as opposed to I'm going to run it in from the two. Here's my prediction. I think that they'll realize quickly that the two-yard conversion is a bad idea because your probability of success is probably about 50%, and I guess the probability of success from the five-yard line is probably something like 40%, 35 to 40, and that's just a pot odds, just a no-brainer. you got to do the, the 50% unless, unless it's the difference of the game on a, some sort of gain probability. The 10-yard line remains to be seen. I mean, if it, if it turns out it's a 30% conversion rate, that's going to look pretty good. Yeah. Um, so we don't really know what these numbers are, but I think that a two-yard, remember doing it for one point. In, right. in the NFL, you get a two-yard for two points. And this is for one point. That's a bad idea to go for it from the two-yard It's line. a very yeah. interesting... I guess now that you bring it up, probably the thing that does surprise me the most is the the, the number of people that went for one and ha- that it was bigger than the number that went for two. Well, they don't, I don't think they understand it yet. Yeah. I mean, I, I, but, no, but, but why... Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think the numbers would... This is another thing to look at. Do you think the numbers would be that different for the XFL versus the NFL? Like for example, no, because I think the de- offensive and defense sort of parity matches each well, no, other out. So yeah. if, that, if that's true, then they do have data. Like we have data, we know yeah, we have. I don't think they understand it. I mean, I'm using oh, so the they NFL. Looked at it. They haven't looked at it. I mean, yeah. if you simply look at the NFL data, fifty percent conversion rate. Just use that. It's about that. That means you expect a half a point with a two yard conversion in this XFL. Let me let me and ask you just you, a question. So let me bring up the business side of it. But you'll see, it's very it's merely statistics, but business. Shouldn't this be shameful? Like, if you're a team and you know that a large part of this game is going for one, two, and three, I would treat it almost like you're the CEO of a company, you have a fiduciary responsibility to your stockholders. How the hell could you not look at the the historical conversion rates from the two, the five, and the ten-yard line and not do the one, at least... But wait, we've, got can, it, we've got billion-dollar NFL franchises still... You know, punting it on fourth and two, like from like from the, the opponent's the, the forty opponents, or something yeah. like that. I mean, what no, I don't, I don't, I don't, th- I don't, th- I don't think 
you know, these people so being be shattered and worked up here. Well, or or it's just sort of like it turns out that there, you can have a lot of like kind of poor decision making in your organization, right, even if you are relatively me, successful organization. Let me toss this out. Okay, so now we now let's say we were hired quickly. We got we got exactly fifteen minutes to come up with an, an answer for the XFL team. What data would we look at? To give them an answer to the probability of success on, on a on a, a five yard conversion. Well, let me let me let me first. Right, so we don't know that yet, and we need to calculate okay. that. If it's all, greater all, than point two five, you go all, for all it. All plays, all play. Uh, you know, I mean, I think our data set would be third and fives. All plays, no, no, all, all, all basically all plays like within ten yards of the end zone. Right, that's the denominator. Yeah, see, here's the no, thing. No, we're doing from the five. I want to know your probability of scoring no, no. if okay. it's first and. Well, no, but here's the thing: you have to be. So this is why. This is where you're going to trade off. Clock is ticking. Oh, what I said, but we're talking here. We're going to trade off sample size versus plays that are more relevant, right? What do you so do? What do you here's do? the thing: you obviously first Shane's point is correct in my view. You have to start with plays. You can't say, well, any third and five play because if I have seventy yards behind yeah, me yeah, versus five yards behind you don't me, want those are I know those are a problem. So I'm, I'm going to take yeah. plays near it's the end zone. It's only going to be the goal line. You can't say, well. Can't be second to five. Well, that, that doesn't matter. That's matter. the yeah, other point yeah. I was yeah. saying because then your play calling everything may be very different. Mm-hmm. I think you have to probably look at plays that it's your last down. Like it could be well, fourth and or, five or third. Well, third down and five from the five yard line. You could still choose to you're go. You're saying for like it on a second down. and five. I, I say, your plays. On second and five are still. I mean, I understand the defense is a little bit different in that they know you've got multiple chances. Correct. But those are still relevant in terms of like you know if you've got a set of plays that gain you around eight yards or something like that, you you know you're going to see you the, know some of those plays on second and five as opposed to third on five. Well, I still l- think they have relevance. Let me at least say the following. There's no question I would start with that. Take all plays from the two-yard line the fo- to goal and goal, the two, the five, and the ten. And, yeah. I would pro- and by the way, I don't even know that I need to be that discreet. Like, I understand two, five, and ten, but like if it's a yard and a oh, half yeah, to yeah, go, yeah, yeah, sure. is that okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, four no, and a half. So I'll take some wind. All, all, all plays within ten yards of the goal line. Is would be the denominator for what I'd start out as for my analysis. So one thing to do would be to actually build a... Like a model which says looks at say a logistic regression model says what's the probability of of success as a function of the yards and yeah. just try to estimate it and then try to then plug in the value yeah. five to ten and see what you get. That would be one way, way of doing it. Borrow strength from all the data. That's and, yeah. not a bad way of doing and it. I think we can do it pretty quickly. But I'm, it's interesting because this threshold is huge because if it's if it's point two five or better for the five yard conversion, it beats going for it from the two. Done. Well, almost certain, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm I, my intuition suggests that it, it's got to be higher from the five, from the, the expected ten, value. Yeah, in, mm-hmm. so in other words, the probability of success from the five it's got to be higher. You than could 0.25. make. I mean, there's yeah. going to be. I, I'll tell you why I also believe it's higher. You could argue, in some sense, the defense has to cover more of an area. I understand it's farther to go. Yeah, but but spread out. It's right. spread out more. So I I think. Yeah, we got to do this. We yeah. have to. Not, look, we're going to do this like analysis. Of a, we're going to send it to Eric at the defenders, and let's see what their reaction is to it. Yeah. Absolutely, we have an in. We have right, an in with the XFL. And I also think there's a couple things just, just to think about. What's the probability of a completed pass? It's about sixty percent. Yeah, and so not it's got to be goal fun. line. Not at the goal no. line, but it maybe if it's forty percent at the goal line, you're already over that threshold. Yeah. 
The median rush is four yards. And we know that if you've got but the, the ball on like, the two-yard line, got is the, different. If yeah. you've got the ball on like the three-yard line, you definitely want to try and complete a pass. We've learned that from Super Bowl's <laughs> past. That's definitely the move. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Shane's gloating. So we should talk about something that, that Shane doesn't like to hear about. Let's talk about maybe Mookie Betts. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, we can talk have about Mookie Betts. So why, don't we spend, why don't we just spend a few minutes about Mookie Betts? Just a minute or two. That's easy. Well, I mean, you know, as, as a fan. Does I'm, it hurt? Yeah, of Tell course. Me about your well, I, well just, I mean, just I, it's my favorite player, and he no longer plays for my favorite team, well, just so that the, definitely hurts. Just for the context for everyone out there, yeah. I know we covered a little bit last week. Most people would consider Mookie Betts maybe the second-best player, offensive player, in baseball, yes. and after Mike Trout. Yep, that's right. Um, that's the data suggests mm-hmm. that. And yep. so why would the Red Sox trade a player well, that so has a ra- tremendous the, offensive the, the, talent? Well, the rationale being that he is a free agent after this season. Um, Can and we he sign him back? And he's already said that he would not take a hometown discount. So sort of kind of, quote-unquote, having him when he hits free agency apparently is gonna, would, would confer no advantage as far as like, signing him to the new contract. So they basically, it, if you believe that they are equally probable to re-sign him as any other team in the MLB a- after this year, then they're basically getting you know, these trade these pieces that they got in the trade for like a one year rental of Mookie Betts. So your comment is they can just re sign him after a year anyway. That's right. I mean, if he, if he kind of assuming it, the Dodgers don't uh, assu- sign him to assuming an extension, he, everything he has said in the media suggests that he and his Scott Boris is his agent. Everything in the media suggests that he is going to hit full on free agency and is not is going to basically go to the highest bidder. Yep. And so, so let's say, so to a certain extent, they they traded for a year rental of Mookie Betts. So they got a couple of young players with some good quality. Yeah. Uh, they and they, all, they also they, they also they also got under the luxury tax threshold. They unloaded a lot of a lot yeah. of money. They got rid of yeah. Price's contract, uh, though they're still paying some of it. But Boogie Betts was, I think, due twenty seven million this year. So yes, right. twenty seven million. So they didn't have to pay that. But I think the real thing is they didn't think they could compete this year against. That's, the I think that's also tr- I think that's also true. Ha! No, I mean, <laughs> feel free to gloat, gloat if you want. Right, you right, know? right. We're just yeah, going to have no, such a great season. Yeah, no, All I right. mean, the Yankees are definitely lined up to dominate in the AL. Well, guys, we only have just two minutes left, so maybe just quickly some over-unders. Oh, we're getting the over-under music. Here we go. It's Wharton Moneyball's <laughs> over-under. All right, guys, we probably only have time for one, but let's talk about one that um, that we've spent some time on already. We talked about the Sixers and their road home record if we look out forget the first 28 road games of the season are the Sixers going to be a 500 team or better the rest of the season road team they're 9 and 19 so that's 28 games they've got 13 games left on the road do they go 7 and 6 or better on the road this season Shane I'll start with you I'm going to take the under on those road wins. I do. I, I think they'll probably not be like as bad as they've been but to, to actually go above five no I say no Adi I'm going to have to agree with Shane Jensen. I think that they don't care. You have to work hard to win those to win to be 500 on the road. I think they'd have to work hard. You, but think, you don't think I don't it's think the five seed? Do it. They care. They uh, wouldn't like to have you, home because, court at least in the yeah, first round. Here's, I guess, the question: Do you think that could they catch the, the fourth seed and the yes. Heat? Is that the Heat? Yeah, two so and, and, and a half. And maybe games that matters to them. All right, back. you know what? All right, Eric, you're convincing me. I'm going to go that they actually have a winning record on the road the rest of the way out. Okay, and I'm going to go with the I'm going to go with the over as well. I think the Sixers um, they realize how embarrassing it is that a team that's going to win 55 games is going to have you know 40 of them or 38 of them at home and you know 16 and 25 or something like that on the road. All right, now you're going to you give me a rooting interest in the rest of the season. Well, there we go. Well, guys, this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, I'd like to thank our guests. Obviously, uh, our guest we. Have 
had uh, Tim who joined us to talk about cricket, which I, I learned a lot about cricket. Obviously, guys, we talked a lot about the MLB today. We talked a lot about the NBA. Um, I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Datz, for always putting up interesting data and stuff on the screen. And of course, thank our associate producer, Dion Simpkins, and thank our assistant producer, Zach Drapkin. Uh, between now and next week, lots going on. Enjoy the XFL. Enjoy golf. There'll be, obviously, pitchers and catchers in baseball, so that's gearing up. Uh, So between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics. We'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.